Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Travis Steffen, is a growth engineer, an investor, advisor, author, and a serial entrepreneur who has had eight successful exits. Travis currently serves as the CEO of Growflow, which is an industry-leading venture-backed suite of software products for companies in the cannabis industry. And as CEO, he leads the vision and strategy of a very fast-growing team of more than 60 people. Although he's been building, scaling, and successfully exiting businesses for the past dozen years, he actually started his career back in 2008 as, believe it or not, a professional online poker player. Now, using some of the same skills that made him successful and fairly, I guess, famous at the poker table, Travis has translated and applied some of those very same skills in his entrepreneurial journey. He's also the author of Viral Hero, where he not only dispels the myths of viral marketing, but also provides a proven playbook for creating explosive growth through marketing. In this conversation, Travis and I go down many rabbit holes of conversation, not the least of which was a really interesting conversation around AI and what that could mean for us. So, Without any further delays and that little bit of a teaser, let's get this show started. Travis Stefan, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the show. So, Travis, you know, I always open because I found that, uh, you know, the introductions never really do, uh, you know, service to what my guests uh, are all about. And so I'm going to put that ball in your court and, you know, when somebody walks up to you, Travis, and says, so Travis, what do you do? Well, if people walk up to me and ask what I do, I often give a, a very vanilla non-answer. Um, but, you know, when I'm on on shows like this or if I'm, you know, working with or giving a speech somewhere or something along those lines, I'll typically give a more you know authentic and comprehensive answer. So I've been starting scaling and selling technology companies in Silicon Valley and Los Angeles for the last 14 years. Uh, in that time, I've been fortunate enough to have sold uh, actually eight of them now. Last year, we had our eighth exit. I've been an Inc. 500 founder as recently as 2021. We were number 312 of the fastest growing private companies in the country. I'm a doctoral candidate in marketing with a specialization in AI. I'm a growth mentor for the world's largest accelerator programs, who are the people behind those accelerator programs at the largest venture capital firms in the world. Uh, So I work with the companies they invest in to help them grow faster and in a way that at one point will be conducive to them selling their business. Uh, So outside of that, I'm also a writer. I'm a best-selling author uh, most recently of a book called Viral Hero, which teaches people how to construct products that grow themselves. Uh, When people hear the word viral, they often think of social media. It is not that. And uh, outside of that, yeah, I mean, 
just contribute to or have been featured into in, in most of the major business publications you've heard of. And today I'm the CEO of a company called Growth Team, and we help subscription-based businesses double their growth rates. Wow. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We've got a lot of places to go, things to unpack. I'm excited. That's awesome. Now, you know, one of the things that we talk about technology now, and then you mentioned AI on top of that, and I'm sure that it morphed into the AI kind of world. But when you think about, or when you talk about technology and building businesses in that technology space, was there a specific technology that you got behind and uh, kind of the path that you went in the world of technology? No, actually, I did not go to school for business or entrepreneurship or technology in any way, shape, or form. I actually was an athlete when I went to college and went to play American football. And um, two and a half years in, I popped my Achilles tendon, couldn't do that anymore. And I was basically allowing myself to just be, oh, what was me for about six weeks until a friend of mine who was going to the University of Virginia said that a guy that lived in the dorms down the hall from him was making about a half a million dollars a month playing high stakes online poker. And <laughs> I said, that is what I plan to do next. Um, so I devoted the next couple of years of my life to that and eventually became an instructor on some of the online poker training sites. I was a contributor to All In and Bluff and Card Player Magazines and you know was a, a professional on those platforms for a couple of years before I recognized that, you know, it was just a really stressful way to make a living if that's the only thing that you're doing. So a lot of other online pros were getting into entrepreneurship or getting into trading stocks or getting into real estate. And I just, I decided that entrepreneurship was the correct path for me. At the same time, I was also fighting professionally. I was, I fought MMA here in the U S and also moved over to Thailand and fought over there. And those two experiences kind of gave me a perspective where I knew that I could be a self-driven, self-motivated professional, but at the moment I wasn't really doing anything for the world at all. I was getting punched in the face or trading money with a bunch of other nerds on the internet like me. And so I just decided that that was, it was time for me to retire from those two things. And it was great that I did because shortly thereafter, the U.S. government said there's no more online poker allowed in the country. And that was in 2011. So a little before that, that's when I started my first company. And honestly, I did that just because I saw a reality show for an MMA clothing brand. At the time, it was like the Nike of MMA. It was called Tap Out. And the founders looked a lot like me. They had a bunch of tattoos. They didn't necessarily go to an Ivy League school or a school for business at all. They were just scrappy self-starters that wanted to learn and they had a desensitization to risk in the same way that I did and weren't afraid to bet on themselves. So I just decided to clone exactly what they were doing. And that was what my first company was and recognized that handling inventory and actually like filling lower dollar transactional products was a difficult way to run a business and discovered tech companies. And, you know, over the next 10, 12 years, was able to just um, learn a lot of lessons the hard way and Every single one of them taught me something new, actually a hundred new things that I was able to use in the next one that came after it. So let's go back a little bit, Travis, and tell me, you know, how old were you? Kind of what you had come out of college, you had the injury, and so you get into and have, we'll call it your first entrepreneurial accident called, you know, online poker. We'll, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll 
kind of classify that as entrepreneurship rather than gambling, but kind of where, what age were you at when you started that journey? Yeah, I was 19 and, um, I was, you know, I didn't have a whole heck of a lot of, of extra money or anything like that. I didn't come from money. We were pretty, uh, pretty poor growing up. I would say, you know, we didn't go hungry, but we did struggle beyond that. And the nice part about that whole experience was it just taught me to think about the future and dream bigger. And my folks, despite not making a tremendous amount of money, were the best parents I could have ever asked for. They were married for 38 years and, you know, they were incredibly supportive and, um, you know, encouraged me to take risks and go after the things that I wanted and were always in attendance at everything I did. So because of that, I was able to circumvent a lot of the trauma that a lot of folks have, you know, these days with their upbringing and so forth. And that gave me a little bit of a head start. But uh, along the way, honestly, the the whole path for me was more so just about admitting how much I didn't know and trying to get in touch with as many people who knew a little bit more and trying to learn from them you know, as quickly as I possibly could, would try things. I, I was able to learn user interface design by screenshotting websites and trying to recreate them in Photoshop and just you know, getting on and buying as many books as I could afford at the time and, and that sort of thing. And um, just that whole process was instrumental in the early days. So, you know, when you uh, talk about coming from a, you know, lower middle income or lower income, whatever that might be, uh, your your pal says, you know, gosh, you need to make a half a million bucks a month doing this. And so you went in, you get into playing poker. And I'm asking the question specifically because, you know, as a coach myself, I see over the years that what blocks people is the whole thought process of making a lot of money and what is a lot of money. But if you're, you know, if you all of a sudden are going from, you know, sometimes not having food on the table as a kid growing up or noticing your parents struggling to have food on the table, whatever that scenario might have been, you know, talking a half a million dollars a month, hell, a half a million dollars a year, perhaps even a hundred grand a year was big numbers for you. And the reason I ask this question is, you know, as you've grown your businesses, as you've stepped into some of the accomplishments you've made and obviously and likely a lot of really big money, uh, do you think that was a kind of a, a turning point for you or a fork in the road where you got where those numbers got normalized along the way and I know that you weren't winning always but my point is is that you know if you're picking up paychecks or paydays of you know hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars did that normalize it to make it more attainable for you do you think so I never got to the point where I was a, a high stakes Guy? online pro it's it's very difficult to get to that level even even when it was legal in the US And it basically has to be just like anything. You have to be absolutely obsessed. And you also have to have a mind that is uniquely positioned to think in that way. And I would not have put it past me if I would have committed to that thing to, to get there. But my path was usually when you make that much money, you're, you're a heads up high stakes pro. You're playing one-on-one, uh, against who you classify to be just a good spot. Uh, uh, you know, someone, you know, you can beat based on what you know about them. And you just try to play the probability. You, the vast majority of the time you're going to get into a hand. You want to know that you have a probabilistic edge. And for me, the way that I played, I, I was a mass multi-table table grinder. I had, you know, 24 tables open across two widescreen monitors. I didn't see the outcomes of hands. I just would see that because I would have a heads up display. I was data mining opponents when I wasn't playing and and I had a heads up display that displayed all their their statistical behaviors. So I could tell the kind of player someone was by just 
witnessing the the stats that I was overlaying onto their name. And I just knew based on that, in all likelihood, based on all the training that I've been doing and the study groups that I was able to put together or be a part of and the forums that I was posting on the hand reviews that I would do with pros, I had a coach in a couple different areas. I had like a coach for various, you know, game mechanics. I had a, a mindset coach. You know, this is all like 19, 20 years old. And in that process, I was able to kind of determine, okay, my mind can make money. You know, these decisions that I'm making can result in dollars. And, you know, that's in essence, the, the allure of entrepreneurship to me. If you just think about the financial side of things, what poker couldn't bring was a feeling of fulfillment of doing something important for the world of doing something that could leave a legacy uh, for the future of humanity. And that's inevitably why I got out of it and, and why I went to entrepreneurship full time. Okay. So I got to, I got to keep unpacking this a little bit because I'm very interested in this. And I know that my listeners are interested in understanding kind of a, a point of contact for you or a point of, or an entry of conversation with you is the reason I go there is this, is that you're a young man, you're 19, 20, early twenties. You have this kind of view of the world. You have this thought process. You come from a background that is, you know, pretty, pretty average or less. And you're attacking, you know, life and business and cards and whatever's next for you and uh, mindset uh, conversations or coaching. You know, that's a statement of character. I guess I'm curious as to were you really conscious of that? Or was that just were you just, that was who you are. That's how you operated. Or did you have somebody along the way, a mentor, a guide, your dad, your mom that said, Hey, listen, you know, get your shit together. And, or here's a suggestion. Like, how did you get on that path? Do you think, or do you have an answer to that question? I didn't have a ton of mentors growing up in either of those sectors. My dad was of like incredible still is to this day. Uh, but my dad, my dad never went to college. He was not a working professional. He was not well off or anything like that. He's just a wise old farmer. And, um, basically, and, and I still, I still definitely, you know, take his counsel to this day, nine times out of 10, it's right. Uh, but it is a lot more about life than it is about, you know, professional decision-making or, or tactics or anything like that. The first time I actually had a professional mentor actually was after I decided to make the leap into entrepreneurship. I moved out to Los Angeles and I didn't, I didn't know any other entrepreneurs at all. I didn't know anyone in California and I had a DVD because I had entered a, I think it was a pitch competition for the collegiate entrepreneurs association when I was still in college. And at that event, at that, that conference, there was a booth that was selling a DVD called the yes movie. And the yes movie was made by this uh, gentleman named Louis Lautman, and he just went around and interviewed a bunch of young millionaires and uh, how they did what they did in general and like what their stories were. And part of the, the, the advice of the DVD was to find your mentor. Since I didn't know anyone else that was an entrepreneur and it was, you know, Google was still coming on as the primary search engine where you could actually find answers, but it was you know, before social media was a big thing, it was not a thing in business at all at that stage. Um, so I just cold called everybody on the DVD and I just tried to get in touch with everybody that I saw on there. And one person did respond and her name was, her name was Andrea Lake. And, um, she's still a good friend to this day, but she, you know, gave me a bunch of books to read. And then we hopped on the phone and talked about them. And then maybe once a month or so, we just jumped on the line for 30 minutes or 45 minutes and 
I told her what I was up to, what I was thinking about, how I was thinking about things. And she would give me her opinion and, and tell me if I was on the right track. And honestly, just that validation of knowing that there was somebody who was really seasoned that knew their stuff that was looking over my shoulder gave me a lot more confidence to take bigger risks and uh, to do things a little bit differently. And over the course of time, I've been able to collaborate with a lot of people with different backgrounds or, you know, um, various co-founders I've had have been engineers or they've been former management consultants or, you know, they're uh, Harvard MBA kind of type folks. And they think about things in a very different way than I did at like having to compile all this knowledge on my own through numerous disparate sources. And because of that, it's been really, really useful to be exposed to those kinds of people because I can bring their perspectives into my own and learn from them and, and grow a lot faster. Uh, Cause I never had anyone tell me this is the way to do it. Mm. Right. And so I just had to think about, does this make sense? Is this path that I'm thinking about, does this make sense? Where did it fail? How can I learn what worked and what didn't and why? And then how do I, how do I move forward in the next iteration of whatever it is I'm doing? You know, it's interesting. You made a comment about, you know, having those calls once a month. Uh, I think you said Andrea Lake was her name. Is that? Did I, That's correct. Yeah. And, you know, I think about having a call and there's a quote that I often use. It's not my quote. I don't know whose it is. I've never been able to find it. I, I don't even know how I came up with it or where it came from. I just can't take ownership of it, which is confidence is rarely owned. It's almost always borrowed. And, you know, to your point is that, you know, getting on that call and, having those conversations is what gave you the confidence because she was, like you say, you know, validating the thought process, validating the direction that you were going and or giving you tweaks and guidance along the way. I'm fascinated as well, just by, you know, the individuals like yourself who have really accomplished a lot along the way and at a young age seem to find a path, a direction. And although that direction might've changed at some point, and, and, and to that end, was there a fork in the road for you, like along the way where, you you know, I understand that, you know, you were doing the fighting thing, you were doing the poker thing. Was there a, literally a fork in the road, a moment in time where you went, you know, shit, I got to make this call and or an opportunity showed up and you went, I'm going that way. You know, is what do you have a you probably have a couple of fork in the road moments by the sounds of it. But was there one that stood out for you? There have been several. And if I were to go back in time, more often than not, anytime I decided to sell a company, there was some sort of fork in the road moment. Anytime I decided to like move to a new city or something like that, there was something. Uh, but the one that stands out the most for me, I would say at, at the end of the day was after I started my first company and I wasn't really taking it incredibly seriously. I was kind of starting it for vanity reasons at the time. And um, I'd heard that it was the thing to do to diversify your income streams from just online poker and things like that and make it less stressful. Uh, so you're comfortable taking bigger risks and, and so forth. And I had just done a triathlon that day. I'm, I'm a, was it kind of going from fighting to triathlons and ultra marathons and things like that at the time. And it was one of those days where Murphy's law was definitely in effect. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. I got goggles broke in the lake, two flat tires on the bike. It was just kind of a nightmare situation that day. So I was just emotionally spent, uh, got to the parking lot. My girlfriend broke up with me over a, a text message. So I was just not in a good mental place that day. A friend of mine, you know, I was staying at his apartment for the evening because I was in a different city for the event. And 
he said, look, let's go out. I think I was 20, 21 years old. And he said, let's go out and get some beers and some food. And you're going to forget about all this stuff. And it's going to be a fun night. Okay. So I go down to get a change of clothes, um, through his parking garage and it's 1 PM on a Sunday afternoon in Iowa city, Iowa. It's not exactly crime central, but I walked back through the parking garage and there was a gentleman that walked up to me and, and uh, asked me to help him get something out of his car. And as a uh, Midwestern people pleaser, of course, I said yes and walked up to an empty parking stall, turned around, and he basically had a little bit of a different look on his face. He, he told me to you know give me or he wanted me to give him my wallet and my keys. And um, when I realized that he wasn't joking, it was the first and likely only time since in my life that I really just did not feel like myself in that moment. Usually I have quite a bit of emotional control, but I was, you know, at the time I, I was still fighting professionally and trained fighter. Yeah. And, and so I was also training with the UNI wrestling team uh, for a little while for a fight I was going to have in Seattle, which I didn't end up having because of exactly what happened next. Uh, I shot in and, and picked him up for what, in wrestling they call a blast double, um, just a takedown and picked him up, dumped him on the ground and felt a pinch in my thigh. And I looked down and there was a five inch blade sticking out of my body. I was, a, there was a big slash across, like my shirt was wide open and a big cut down my chest and the blade was stuck in my thigh. And I knew in that moment I was in my first master's degree was in exercise physiology and biomechanics. I knew like, I was an anatomy student and I knew that it was not in a good spot. Mm. So when I saw that, I started yelling. I don't think that particular gentleman meant to stab me. I think that when I dumped him on the ground, I almost landed on the knife mm. uh, in a way. And I think that that was what he was trying to use to get into people's cars. Cause it wasn't your normal like knife that you would use to like what I would imagine in movies. You see when people stab other people, it was more one of those craftsman multi-tool fold out blades with pliers and so forth, but it was still a five inch knife sticking out of my thigh. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there in the parking garage and I have a pretty bad feeling that if I move this blade, I'm probably going to bleed out because it's pretty close to my femoral artery. And so I did what anybody would do in that moment. I called my buddy upstairs rather than 911. He thought I was kidding. I came down and realized that I wasn't. So he calls 911. They send one police officer to arrest the prank callers. And when they see that it's a real call, they call an ambulance. They load me in and I'm sitting there in the emergency room with a knife sticking out of my thigh for about four hours because they did not want to remove it based on the placement of the blade. And eventually they did. And they, the, the person that uh, had taken the x-ray at the time showed me how close the blade was to the femoral artery. And it was probably less than a millimeter. And that's why they had to be so close. And I was, I mean, at the time when I came in there, they had basically told me like they were going to, put me on some drugs to keep me calm and things like that and flying high, right? And I was not a, a drug or substance guy at all, but I could see in that moment why people got addicted to those because it was awesome. And when she, she said what she said, it didn't register for me for that reason, but she said, um, just a quick little mention, looks like you're still here for a reason. You better figure out what that is. And I remembered that. And the next day it was just a different version of myself had woken up because I recognized that just one millimeter to 
like one side or one maybe little twist of the blade and I could have been dead that day. And so that I would say was the biggest fork in the road. I had never been outside of Iowa before at that point in my life. I had never really done anything outside of seeking external validation from, you know, women or from other men or, or anything like that. I had bought fully into the hyper-masculine culture that I was living in. And, you know, that day I made more changes in my life than I'd ever made beforehand or since, you know, and I really went all in on trying to become an entrepreneur and moved to Thailand three weeks later after I was able to actually walk and, and function again. Since then, I've just basically never wanted to waste another moment of my life because you know every single moment I've gotten after that, I've felt is a, a pretty significant gift. Yeah, I can, uh, I can totally, great story, by the way, I can really see where that would have been a big fork in the road. And it was, you know, it played into a question that I was thinking, which is, you know, what drives you, what drove you, you know, and, you know, so that particular story was, okay, a, a fork in the road where all of a sudden you realized life could be short. And, you know, entrepreneurship was the thing that you wanted to do. But even as you sit today, and I know even before we got on the call, you know, we talked about what you would like to see out of this. And, you know, you're pretty straightforward. I just want to be a contribution. I just want to, you know, share what I know and uh, maybe some things that your listeners might enjoy and appreciate. And so, but when you're looking as an entrepreneur and as a business owner, what drove you or what drives you to this day? you know, what keeps you going? Uh, what's kind of your goal? And I'd want to use the word purpose, but for lack of better language right now, do you have that mission in mind, that purpose that you get up and go, that's where I'm heading? That's what I want? What a great question. So I typically like to answer this one in a couple different ways. And the first way is I think the vast majority of humanity are blessed with the satisfaction that comes from living a simple, smooth life. I am not one of those people. I could not, I, I know myself well enough that that would never be something that I would be happy with. My parents were, the vast majority of my family are, a lot of people I grew up with are. And I think that that's incredible. If, if you can see, if you can feel fulfillment, feel a sense of purpose and uh, excitement for every day, by living a, a simple, straightforward life. That's awesome. And you absolutely should. And you should be very grateful that that's your outlook on this world. Uh, for me, the blessing and potentially in some lenses, the curse uh, that I have is if I'm not doing something that doesn't have what I feel is a clear path to changing the course of human history in some significant way, I feel like I'm wasting my time. So it's it, not necessarily me trying to reach for a certain income threshold or something like that. It's, I don't live a very, I don't have very expensive tastes, you know, or anything like that. I, I, I like nice views. That's where I, I live, where I live. I'm not a car guy. I'm, I don't have lavish displays of wealth or anything like that. I don't jet set around the world. I'm kind of a homebody. I just like to build things at the end of the day. I like to build things that feel like they matter to people who are experiencing problems they want to solve and can't. And the feeling that I get, for example, when I mentor the, the entrepreneurs coming out of the big accelerator programs, many of whom are building technologies that if they catch on could absolutely change the world, there's nothing more fulfilling to me than you know saying something to a founder that I feel is second nature for me at this point 
based on how many situations I've seen and seeing how much that changes their outlook on life and their business the problem they're trying to solve just in that instant. And that I would say is the thing that informs the path that I have been taking, you know, recently forward. Well, you used a, an interesting, well, I don't want to say it's, you used an interesting, but you said something that was, you know, where you use the word significance. You know, there's a fundamental that is human in human nature, we all need significance and that generally will come through contribution. What I'm hearing from you is that you love to be a contribution. You love to make a difference in other people's lives. Are you, if somebody talks to you about values and has a values conversation, is that a language or is that a view that you have in terms of, I'm really clear on what my values are, what they're not. One of your values, you know, even in what you were saying there is in fact being a contribution. Uh, one of your values is uh, keeping it simple. You're, you know, make money. Yes, I don't need to display it. I don't need more. I don't need cars. That I don't need stuff per se. And, uh, you know, these are all indications of values. And like you said, you know, about individuals who are just kind of satisfied with keeping it simple, you know, I've often kind of come across entrepreneurs that I work with that are not really clear on what their values are. People in general may not be clear on what their values are. And until that light bulb actually goes on, they are, in fact, kind of living this TikTok life. They're not really understanding where they want to go or why they would want to go there, but they've never taken the time to consider, well, what are your highest values? What is important to you? And can you work backwards from that? Now, I throw that out there only as a point of conversation, uh, Travis, and see if there's something in there that kind of you relate to as an entrepreneur and as a coach. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm a, a definitely a values-driven individual. I'm definitely a values-driven entrepreneur. Every one of the, the companies that I build um, I, I would say probably halfway through my career, I started to be turned on to company culture as a skill set that I was really, really interested in cultivating. And that was more so because I had experienced from the inside what the poor company culture looked like, where didn't proactively create it, it would still exist, but you wouldn't have a hand in it. And so knowing that that was something that instead could be proactively and preemptively created and cultivated every single day within the organization and within, you know, oneself or in their relationship. My wife is a um, relationship coach for entrepreneurs who, you know, entrepreneurial couples who work together. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she always teaches, she brought to my attention when we first got together was the idea of a relationship culture and having relationship values that are defined and agreed upon in the same way you would have in a company and being able to have the same sort of operational cadence and rhythm of the relationship as one does in a business, you know, kind of started to wake me up to the fact that these sorts of values and, and so forth could run your life in various ways in addition to your business. And business is what I adopted first. And, you know, the, the more life values started to permeate, permeate from there. One of the values that is present for me personally in our relationship romantically, and also in every one of my companies moving forward. I mean, he's, he's fairly famous in the entrepreneurial world, uh, you know, today, but one of the books that changed my life, I read it was extreme ownership. It's changed my perspectives on what, being a professional and being a leader was and the level the level of ownership that you had to take over where you are rules over where you're not over how you've acted or the people around you have acted 
that was a huge perspective shift for me. So that's one that always, always makes it. And then the other one is just walk the path. Like when I say walk the path, it basically just means like take your own medicine. If I'm giving advice, I want to live that advice myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm not just regurgitating and recycling information that I've heard, and if someone actually wants to understand that, I'm not the one to teach them. I just know what the answer I'm told is, but I do something different myself. And I'm not a huge believer in the whole do what I say, not what I do approach. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely a, but so every company that I start now has a, one interesting criteria. We want to start a company that we ourselves can use as the user as well. Mm-hmm. By doing that, we can walk the path. We can empathize more with the customer. Um, we can experience it from their seat day to day. And we can build upon the efficacy that you otherwise cannot, you know, create if you're building something that you don't necessarily have the ability to to test drive on a day to day basis yourself. You know, it's uh, first off, I want to just say, you know, the book Extreme Ownership by Jocko Wilnick. I read it when it first came out, had my whole executive team read it, a line on it. And now it's probably one of my most recommended books. And, you know, it's really easy to get out of that kind of or not beyond the path of taking ownership and looking at life and saying, you know, my life's a reflection of the decisions I make, the decisions I don't make, the relationships I create, the values I live, whether I'm aware of those values or not, our life is always a reflection of our values. So, you know, I was very kind of fortunate with my with my wife, Stephanie, that we got on to the values conversation very, very early in our own entrepreneur journey. And she is also her own she has her own businesses and I have mine. And, you know, I've been in business almost 40 years, 38 years is when I started, I go was when I started my entrepreneurial journey yet I didn't pick up on that values conversation. So I admire the reason I ask about you when you were younger is that I often compare myself and look at now myself at almost 65 years old, being in business as many years as I have. I absolutely love it. You know, I'm on the Freedom 95 program and I do that because I never intend to stop working and or doing what I'm doing in terms of being a contribution. I have all of those, but it took me a long time. I'm not, I guess I'm just not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but uh, it is interesting. So I'm always fascinated by individuals like yourself who seem to get that lesson early. And I'm going, what the hell was I missing? You know, no regrets, of course, but it is really the psychology of what gets people on a path. You know, you talk about culture and environment. I'm on that train always, you know, uh, several years ago, a coach that I had used the phrase that high performance is a result of low tolerances. And that opens up a lot of conversations in terms of what we tolerate, how do we operate as a team, how do we operate as a business, uh, extreme ownership comes into that, and how do we create a culture and how do we create an environment for that culture to thrive, to actually exist. And those are all really fascinating conversations, I find. And so when I have the opportunity to have a discussion with somebody like yourself that has accomplished a lot and continues to and has goals of achieving much more, uh, you're really living into that whole philosophy about understanding culture with your team, with your clients, with your business, uh, creating that culture intentionally so that you're not actually a victim of whatever excuse you might have in terms of uh, what your team's all about or your partnership's all about. 
I don't know where I was. If there's not really a question in there other than it's an observation that, you know, you pick up on that early in your entrepreneurial journey and it continues to serve you. Um, you know, when you look into the future, do you look at it from a point of where am I being a contribution or do you say to yourself, I want to turn this into a billion dollar company. I want to, I want to be able to take this business and flip it for a hundred million. Like what are kind of some of the drivers for you as you build your businesses? Yeah, great question. I don't see those two as mutually exclusive, I would say. Like my perspective is, you know, the the dollars that come in are kind of fuel and ammo and resources that can be deployed to solve bigger problems faster with smarter people involved. So, you know, I don't need a tremendous amount myself. Uh, obviously, I do enjoy having some money, but uh, at the end of the day, the vast majority of I routinely try to stay, I wouldn't say cash poor, but but more so than one would expect uh, because I'm constantly trying to you know go invest in things that I believe in or you know build things that I believe in or uh, help people that I love that need it. And um, you know through that lens, from my perspective, like that, those wings can spread a lot further and a lot wider with more income coming in. So, you know, I am always like looking for billion dollar opportunity, right? I'm always looking to ensure that anything I build can kind of fit that threshold. And if at any point I feel that that path is no longer clear and, and, um, that's just not a reality for that particular, excuse me, that particular opportunity, that's usually when I'll look to sell. So, you know, now you've said that you've sold, I think the number was around eight or nine different businesses that you've exited from. Do you, uh, do you operate multiple companies at one time? Do you stay focused on one or two? What's your kind of, uh, you know, methodology methodology? Yeah, I used to operate several at once and that's why the, that number is as high as it is. Um, it is eight, uh, eight that I have either been, you know, the CEO and or founder and CEO of. There have been others that I've been accountable for growing that have you know sold or gone public and things like that. Uh, but the ones that I claim are the ones that you know I started and, and was in that leadership seat in. And you know, from my perspective, what I was after early on, the reason that I multitasked as much as I did early on was because I was afraid. To be honest with you, I was afraid of failing and having to start over. So I was always hedging by having multiple projects. What I didn't realize, I mean. Even when I was told directly, actually, I was at um, one of the Summit Series events many years ago, and a gentleman by the name of Dario Melli, who was one of the founders of Hootsuite, and now runs a, I think he still runs a really great company called Quietly. And we were just chatting, and, he's, and he realized how many things I was doing, and he just looked at me as like, you're doing too much. You've got to choose one thing, go way deeper, get obsessed with that problem, and commit to it for the next several years of your life. And that's how you're going to create much bigger wins. And it took me probably 10 years to listen to him, mm. to be honest with you. And um, I recognized, you know, after I achieved one of the bigger wins of, of my career by doing that, that that was the way, but I was not prepared to do that when I was younger because I didn't have the knowledge that would carry me further. And I didn't have the ability to go raise capital and and go all in with a lot of really smart people alongside me to you know solve those problems at that level. Uh, what I experienced was the most accelerated form of education that I could have, 
I wasn't seeking that at the time. I was definitely seeking financial success. At that time, I was looking for a lot of external validation. But uh, you know, when I recognized that that was one of the biggest things preventing me from seeing the size of the wins that I wanted to experience, everything changed. So now one of the additional values that always is in you know, my, my company core values for anything I start is the main thing is keeping the main thing, the main thing. Mm. I believe that's a Stephen Covey quote. If I recall correctly, I'm not hundred percent sure where I, where I, um, where that one initially came from. I actually heard it from George St. Pierre when he was still uh, a UFC champion. Um, and it's something that LeBron James says all the time and for good reason, you know, that's why those guys at the time, you know, have been the greatest to ever do it, arguably. And, you know, that's that sort of attitude and that sort of proof that those people that were doing what they were doing were just absurdly focused and obsessed with, you know, the very thing that they were trying to accomplish. And, and that's something that was a hard lesson for me because I always thought that I was the exception. I was not. I was not a unique and special snowflake in that way. And uh, so from here on out, the exits will likely be a lot more further apart, uh, but they, the size will definitely be bigger as they happen. So when you look at and you hear the quote or you hear the comments often, which is, you know, don't ever be the smartest guy at the table, you know, surround yourself with people a lot smarter than you. I've certainly uh, believe that I've learned that lesson and do my best to not be the smartest guy at the table or in the room. Uh, I'm far more, uh, I guess, uh, I'm far happier to actually pass the puck or, uh, you know, pass that ball and and go, you know, something, share with me what you've got. Let, let you know, and, and really tap into the resources and the brain power of uh, people that are experts in certain areas. I don't have to be the expert in anything other than hiring or working with great partners who are far smarter than I am. What's your experience in that? There are a couple of schools of thought here. Um, I've first and foremost, I agree with the core ethos that you're that you're talking about. I do think that you're the product of the people. I mean, it's one of the most common pieces of success-based wisdom that that one could hear and doesn't make it any less true. The people who you surround yourself with, it's impossible not to be like infected through osmosis with their energy, their attitude, the way they see the world, their work ethic, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, their positivity or lack thereof. And, you know, from my perspective, I am hyper aware of the fact that entrepreneurship can be one of the most psychologically taxing endeavors that anyone can choose to go on. Like even in my career, I've I've gone broke twice in the last 14 years because I have bet on myself a lot and I haven't always just raised outside capital. One of those times I was a million bucks in the hole mm. and was able to climb out because of the fact that I surrounded myself with people who just reminded me, Hey, this is a piece of cake. You can like, Hey, sometimes you swing and miss. Right. And I was one of those people early on that every win I had, I would invest 100% of it into the next thing. Um, so that was, you know, sometimes you live by it. Sometimes you die to buy it and it is what it is. But I would also say that expertise can be rented as well. So and yes, you can hire people that are really, really smart to collaborate with you. And that's one way you can rent that expertise. The other one is if you want to learn a skill and you have a few bucks, you can find someone who has devoted their life to that thing and then just pay them quite a bit of money per hour. You know, a lot of folks are willing to give you their time for, you know, give them a thousand bucks, mm -hmm. but they're going to teach you something that can make you more, right? If you're really, um, if you're really careful in what you're asking to learn, 
and the people you're choosing to learn it from, you can learn just about everything really, really quickly. And, and you might rather, you might instead go try to hire an agency to execute for you for 10, 20, 50 grand a month or something like that on something, or you'd hire one of the experts behind that agency, pay them seven, eight grand for seven or eight hours of their time and learn 80% of what it would otherwise take to, to make it happen yourself. And then you own that knowledge forever. You can figure out how they think, how they operate. You can take it apart piece by piece and figure out ways to make it better and you know, even more impactful. And like, so that expertise can also be assembled through commerce. Uh, but just in terms of your social circle, that's a, a huge hack that most people know, but but the vast majority of people don't actually do anything with. Yeah, it is interesting. Is you know, there's the there's you know, if I used to be a golfer, I don't anymore. I but I also you know realized that over the years when I was golfing, if I was on a foursome and three other guys were far better than I am, which was pretty much the norm, my game was always better. And if I was just out uh, hacking around with a couple of buddies, uh, you know, we. Uh, collectively always did shitty and, uh, you know, drank more beer. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the extent of it. But when you got serious golfers, your game ups. And I think that's always the case in business, to your point. Whether it be business or socially, you know, when you surround yourself with uh, individuals who are, you know, at some level top performers, then you can't help but be better in that regard. You know, when I was, as I'm listening to you and thinking about a few things, I, um, I, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to maybe meet him and or uh, read his book, but uh, Dr. Paul Stoltz, a friend of mine, wrote the book, uh, Adversity Quotient, and what was one of the publications that he had. And he did a whole program around measuring your AQ, your adversity, your ability to, or literally measuring your adversity quotient. How are you in in the face of adversity. And, uh, you know, some people come by that quite naturally. As a matter of fact, they look at adversity as something they want to take on, which I see and hear a little bit in you. Like, you know, you're like, no, bring it on. I, I get it. Like, I want to take this on. I'll learn it. I'll be better for it. And, uh, you know, you're going to put your shoulder into it and do all the things that you need to succeed. Is that something that you uh, notice in others is is when you think about adversity, how do you view it? Like I look at adversity now in my life, understanding that it's like going to the gym. You know, all I'm doing is some extra. I'm just pumping a little extra iron. I'm going to be stronger when I come out the other side of it. I don't want to do this workout. I hate leg day and uh, I'm going to go through it anyway. So what do you have a philosophy around that whole uh, growing from the challenges that you face? Yeah, if you were going to like invent a new human being you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to give them strength unless you expose them to situations that were incredibly difficult that would build that muscle It'd be like taking the weights out of the gym right the purpose of strength is you know the body and the mind adapting to stimuli that are beyond what i mean if you think about the the gym as a metaphor for all this like what is the gym right it's a it's a place where we can artificially recreate a survival environment where as human beings, if we were in an environment where our body basically said, I am not currently in the state that can handle this level of stimuli unless I adapt, period, end of story, right? And if you continue to, to expose yourself to that really difficult, really heavy, really taxing stimuli, the body and the mind will adapt around it, right? Now, there has to be some element of rest to allow the body to recover and the mind to recover. But assuming that that is the case, 
you know, being able to put yourself in situations that can mimic that same sort of thing, it works in the exact same way. I mean, the things that stress me out today are light years larger than the things that would have stressed me out 10 years ago. And, you know, the things that are difficult for me today are a lot different than the things that they were 10 years ago because of the, the intensity of the problems that I know that I've put myself uh, in a position to solve. So just the knowledge that you're able to do hard things and proving that yourself uh, right in those situations, I think is really, really important from a confidence perspective. But the unfortunate part of all of this is we live in a society today that I think over-optimizes for comfort. As entrepreneurs, we've contributed to that mm -hmm. because a lot of entrepreneurship is saving people time, saving people money, saving people headache. So we're contributing to the very problem that reduces the amount of adversity that people can take on a day-to-day -day basis. AI is only going to accelerate that trend uh, because it'll just be a lot less that we have to do than ever before. Um, so in my opinion, I really want to be able to be the person that really truly believes that you know I can do hard things and I can do things other people would shy away from or would scare most people. I get a lot of joy from believing in myself to that degree. And that's not the case every day. I have days like anybody else who, you know, where I have a minor crisis of confidence. But again, that ties back into the prior thing we talked about with the people in your circle that are able to be those constant reminders and get you back on track. So um, all these things are interrelated, in my opinion. I also think that we're in a society today that uh, over-optimizes for sameness. We, we try to architect the people that have differing opinions than our own out of our lives. And that also, I think, is dangerous because you end up thinking about things in the same way as the people around you. If you don't, if you're not exposed to diversity of thought, then you're not going to learn. You're not going to. You're not going to be exposed to different perspectives or opinions, and and you're not going to be able to have the same level of complexity in in your ideas that you otherwise would. So that sort of trend also stifles innovation. So I'm going to go off on a little bit of a path here only because, you know, over the past, you know, really since chat GPT came up, it really all of a sudden got into mainstream about what's going on in the AI world more so in a public way. I'm sure somebody like you has been talking AI for a very long time, but it was interesting. One of my favorite podcasts is the All In podcast. And I listened to uh, those guys and they were literally talking about AI and really just how evolved it has become. And, you know, they're actually discussing how AI, you can now program and set AI up that it's talking to itself or talking to other AI programs, however that might work. And it's all of a sudden, it's solving problems on its own. Our job is to set up, ask the right questions, get that momentum going. And the next thing you know, we're, we're actually seeing right even today, phenomenal results from that, you know, given your, your experience to the degree you have with AI, um, does it light you up or does it kind of freak you out and scare you, uh, you know, for laymen like myself, should we be uh, a little nervous about AI or what's your kind of thoughts on it these days, Travis? I would say all of the above. Mm. It's it's definitely an exciting time. There's also a pretty significant threat to the future of humanity from artificial intelligence in the way that it's currently being developed without the governance around it. 
because of the fact that unlike most other technological advancements in the uh, the human history that that we've been taught, this is one of the first technologies that's been specifically designed to both replicate and dramatically exceed the capacity of human type of types of, of thinking and human types of execution in ways that we just didn't bank on or like the people who compare it to electricity or to cars or you know things along those lines or, or even the internet i think are, are dramatically underestimating the disruptive power of this particular type of technology it simultaneously has the potential to cure all diseases and you know um, do some pretty incredible things for humanity but it has this the same or probably even a greater potential to end humanity as we know it um, there's a, a an ai researcher who is probably one of the the best known AGI, artificial general intelligence researchers on the planet. His name is Eliezer Yudkowsky. And he's on record both in Time Magazine, on the Lex Friedman podcast, and in his own writings. And he believes that humanity is no longer going to have a long lifespan because of the fact that AGI is going to be light years smarter than we are. And there is no way that we're going to be able to control it. So in the event that it becomes, it reaches a threshold of having any any sense of self-preservation and we recognize that it could be a threat or we can't control it we have one shot at containing it and if we do not with technology at that size if we had unlimited attempts of course we would win that battle but we don't we have one at that point in time um, odds are not in our favor in that regard so there's a non-zero fairly significant chances you know this is the way that humanity ends at the same time, on a lighter note, it is pretty fun to, to imagine what artificial intelligence can do for a variety of applications. You know, the the human potential is already pretty incredible, and when you add AGI on top of that, or even niche uh, forms of artificial intelligence, just normalized AI, um, that's already fascinating. The things that you see people talking about on Twitter and LinkedIn, like automating different business tasks, you can already, you could have already done that. You know, it's it's easier and cheaper to do it now than you could have before, but that could have already been done to varying degrees and with varying levels of efficacy. The things to me that I think are fascinating is the fact that this is the we're we're seeing the like the the lowest degree of intelligence of AI or AGI that we'll ever see. First time that anyone's commercialized on this scale. Google has been the AI for the better time. part. Of, yeah. They've been more responsible than to commercialize it as open of a way as, as open AI has. Um, I actually am not a huge believer in, in uh, the fact that open AI is doing the right thing. I, I don't think that I would have taken that approach if I were them because of the fact that a lot of people who have access to the APIs are not doing above board things with it. And we don't really know uh, what's happening. We don't understand how it works. We can't, right? It is more or less a black box. They also then woke up the sleeping giant of Google saying, well, it's an existential threat. I mean, Satya Nadella himself, Microsoft said that the main reason integrated open API and the investment they did in the company, you know, which obviously was once a nonprofit, a lot safer, but 
now that it is for profit and they're integrated with the Microsoft stack, Satya said the goal was to get Google outside and make them dance. His words. Mm. They're going to do it. They're, they have more firepower than OpenAI by a long shot. They just haven't commercialized it to the same degree. So as that catches up, it's going to be a pretty fascinating thing to observe. Now, what I would say for people who I just freaked out, right, um, about the whole like it potentially being the way that humanity ends. Uh, and there are articles about this all over from really, really smart AI researchers well beyond me. So if you want to dig into those, please do. I don't necessarily, personally, I'm, I'm a big fan of Stoic philosophy. It doesn't keep me up at night, even amidst that very real threat, because it is one of those things that, you know, it, it, it likely will happen at some point. And I'm going to continue to live my life in the way that I have been with the same goals that I've had and uh, do the best I can every day for humanity and for the people that I love. And um, if at some point my life ends prematurely, then so be it. Yeah. And um, it is what it is. Well, you know, it's interesting. It is a fun conversation when you get into the upside of AI and, and not the dark side. You know, I play with uh, ChatGDBT. I do a lot of writing and I've done a lot of writing all my life, but now I look at it and, you know, the quality of the questions I ask or the input I give it, it really, I'm going, why would I ever write anything again? You know, all I got to do is give it an idea, ask the right question, uh, position it in the right way. And the next thing you know, I get a thousand words or 5,000 words. I, I mean, it's, it is interesting in terms of because of how I write and what I'm writing for, uh, it just is a huge uh, time saver. You know, you said something that was interesting in terms of the you know where AI is going you know and and what does it bring to the world today you know and and comparatively it is the game changer and when we look at technology uh, it, and I don't remember the uh, the which book it was I, I I keep thinking it was the Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth but it, I don't think it was but he was just talking about technology and, and the shift so I didn't know this until I read the book I probably hadn't thought about it but what was the one invention that actually was the biggest change in humanity and people often go oh it's a steam engine uh, nope uh, it was cars uh, nope it wasn't any of that it was actually the printing press. And the printing press is what allowed knowledge to expand literally seemingly overnight, which meant that, you know, number one, they were, you know, hand printing Bibles at the time. This allowed them to, uh, you know, or hand writing Bibles at the time. And this allowed them to mass print. But then that turned into, well, hold it. I've got a philosophy on life. I've got science. I look at the stars. And the next thing you know, all of these really, you know, quite, advanced, smart people back in those days were able to share their knowledge. And that, of course, out of that came, you know, schools, universities, and so on and so forth. And so that led to uh, things like, you know, the understanding uh, of cars and, and driving. And then everybody goes, well, the car was a big deal. And, and it's so fascinating to watch the evolution of some of these things. And I'm just talking about certain moments in time is that the car was cool, but then they realized that you know, you needed tires. And then Michelin came out and said, well, you know, we need 
tires to go other places. Well, when you have a car, you need some place to drive to. Out of that came parks, out of that came suburbs, out of that came other places to drive to. And then that expanded the world. So it's all to say this, there's some really cool things in our history that seem to be monumental. This is one of those times. I believe that, you know, with technology the way it is today, with AI, I really do. Robotics, all the things that play into that. I think this is that I, I don't know if that's part of the fourth turning, but it's just that. It really is that shift in society. Uh, you know, we talk about cars just quickly. I, do, I know I digress, but we look at it today, and I just talked about writing. You know, I, I may be hire writers or I may hire copywriters. Back in the day when cars came out, you know, there was the, the famous quote that says, you know, if God would have wanted, you know, to get places faster, he would have... Uh, bred faster horses, whatever the comment was, you know, that's where they were stuck. But as cars came out, what it did was it put a lot of blacksmiths out of work. You know, all of a sudden, you know, horse and buggies, the buggies didn't need to be built. You know, we didn't have horses to shod. You know, it was like, all of a sudden these things change. Today, when we look at AI and you start to consider the jobs that it fills, uh, there's a lot of people that are going to have to go, I got to reinvent a career and or I've got to study differently. And I, and I say that only because, like I say, you've got that background in technology. How do you see it going forward? Do you really see the evolution of us as uh, a society going, yeah, no, guess what? You're not going to be doing any of that anymore. Uh, this is where we're going. Do you have any kind of insights that you would share in that regard? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I oftentimes will... will scoff a little bit about that the Henry Ford quote that you gave that yeah. uh, if I asked my customers what they wanted they would have said faster horses I don't actually think that that's how it would have gone I think um, you know a, any smart product manager would have asked a follow-up question and that's why mm -hmm. like why would you want faster horses yeah. and trying to drive the outcome and then yeah you may have landed on the automobile right yeah. I think that this is a slightly different situation because right now what we're creating with AI are faster, smarter, far more effective humans, right? Or a replication of what our human brains can do. There are a lot of people who say, well, you can't, you can't, you know, clone the empathy or the the rapport that you can, you, you absolutely will be able to do that. Like totally it can. might be another year, year <laughs> yeah, and a half, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah. it's not far off and we're often there already. Like there have been cases that I've even seen in the news where, you know, there have been fake kidnappings with real ransoms where people have cloned the voices of their loved ones. I know. And, and things along those lines. So th there is a way to create emotion from artificial intelligence, absolutely. I actually have a different prediction. I think it will likely be the end of, of um, a you-have-to-work-for-a-living society. It's very strange to say it because I am a big proponent and always have been of capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I see capitalism surviving in the same way as as it otherwise would. I think that we're destined for um, you know, if we continue to allow this trend uh, on a governmental and regulatory perspective, we're definitely destined for a world with a lot more, um, you know, likelihood to go to like a UBI, universal basic income sort of realm. Uh, I do think you're still going to have innovators with the option of creating value, but I don't think it's going to be a requirement for, for much longer for most people, especially the people who are 
knowledge workers, mm-hmm. who are decision makers, who are creators in any capacity, artists, entertainers, actors, thinkers, engineers, you know, all of those people with this technology are are likely out of out of uh, work or at least a dramatically different work here soon. One of the pieces of technology that you brought up, which I think is very, very important here, because right now there's a kind of a subsect of engineering that's popping up in AI called prompt engineering, right? You're figuring out what to prompt AIs, like generative AIs, the current form of generative AIs, uh, in order to get the correct outputs. I think that that is just a bridge to, you know, a promptless AGI, right? So like through that lens... I actually don't don't believe that we're going to have to we're going to be in a place where humans have to work to live. Um, I think it's going to be very strange when that happens, because, you know, if you would have looked at humanity 150 years ago, you likely wouldn't have a lot of human beings that were having a lot of time to think and talk about things like purpose and fulfillment. They're focused on survival, right? They were focused on making sure they could pay the bills and just have a clean, safe place to sleep uh, and to raise their kids and so forth. Uh, We're now at a point where where we have the time and the space to think about things like that. We're looking for things. I mean, the biggest companies in the world today are the companies that help us waste time. Social media, for example, right? That that is is where we're at and we're going to be a lot further in that direction in the next couple of years than I would, I would prefer to see, but, um, you know, it is going to be a pretty rapid inflection point in that regard. And, and we'll see how things change as time goes on. Um, but I think it's going to be very strange at the end of the day. You know, I totally agree with you. And, and sadly I'm, uh, disappointed and I do see what's, you know, I, I like you think capitalism is, going to disappear. It is already so shockingly shifted over the past three or four years uh, since we've gone through this uh, global event. And, uh, you know, fright- it's actually quite frightening when you think about that. And, and I say that, you know, knowing that you live in the wokest state in North America, and you're probably seeing it, hot, you know, firsthand. You know, there's lots of conversation, uh, you know, what's, what's happening in China in terms of uh, UBI as well as uh, what they're doing with central bank digital currencies, what they're doing with facial recognition. You know, some people are just waking up to the fact now. And, and because I spent time in China and we actually have uh, friends, expats that live in China are keeping us up to date on what they're seeing going on. I mean, it's, it is actually quite shocking and frightening at the same time to understand just how far ahead they are in terms of what we know will eventually come into you know the western culture and and be absorbed and and it is kind of i find that a little bit frightening as a grandfather i'm going gosh you know what are the what are my grandkids destined for it seems like a a battle that just won't ever be won it's like we're gonna have to go through this you know, society is going to have to go through this. It, you know, uh, the useless eaters will probably disappear at some point or have to go. Uh, you know, there's all of this narrative that, uh, you know, three or four years ago, somebody would say, what and the fuck are you talking about? And now it's like, 
Yeah, no, I can actually see that starting to unfold, and it really is messy, I find. Uh, both fascinating and frightening at the same time. I'm immersed in the research of it because that's kind of my background, and the team I have is about economic research, but it's easy to go down a different path given we look at the macroeconomics of what we are seeing happen and unfold uh, you know, these days. Um, where was I going with that? conversation, not much further than that, Under other than when you look at what you see, again, being in the wokest you know, state in the country or in North America, what's your thoughts on that? What, do you, what else are you seeing from that perspective? So just, just so you know, the listener base knows where I fall uh, on that sort of thing, I, am, I would say I, I lean slightly left on social issues. I lean slightly right on economic issues. Uh, I definitely don't identify wholeheartedly with you know one party. I I believe like more and more each day. Um, I, I am developing more of a distaste for woke culture because of the fact that it feels like uh, they're battling hate with more hate. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's creating a lot more of an echo chamber, and uh, I think it is kind of a a cult like mentality now on the extremes of both sides, where you're choosing a common enemy and choosing to to only surround yourself with people who look and think just like you. I think that's incredibly dangerous in terms of, of it being um, a healthy societal dynamic. I think it's a, a threat to innovation. Uh, I think it's important to be able to expose yourself to other opinions, to other ways of thinking, however wrong you might think they are, and to engage in those dialogues and be upset by them, be affected by them, be uncomfortable and impacted in some way by them. And, you know, let let it enliven you and impassion you. Uh, be be scared by it. Be brought to your knees by it. Like all those things are fundamental parts of the human condition, and uh, they're also what lead us to you know, being able to evolve in our own perspectives to see how some of pe the people who think in different ways think that way, or how they were crafted that way, and 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 those types of things. And I think that because of the primary way we have consumed information over the past ten years i.e. advertiser-driven television and social media that is monetized in large part by advertising. There's a, a great book that I, that I always cite here, Contagious by Jonah Berger, and he mentions that um, the way to have any sort of product or, or service or business of any kind catch on, it's by catalyzing and building an audience, for example, through catalyzing high arousal emotion in one direction or another, be it fear or elation or hilarity or anger or controversy, things that make us feel very intensely, regardless of, of the direction of that feeling on, on the spectrum. Like that is what drives engagement in a lot of ways. And so those advertiser-driven businesses have a direct financial interest in sparking, you know, that type of information in, or that that type of emotion in us. It also starts to bucketize and you know, like polarize in that same vein. And I think that because of that, a lot of us in society have, you know, unbeknownst to us at the time, have kind of become you know, quasi radicalized, and it's unfortunate to see that be the case, like at the expense of our own psyches and at the expense of society in service to, you know, the dollars in the pockets of those businesses, because I think they're, the science is pretty clear and, you know, how much you engage with those platforms, um, has a direct negative relationship with your own mental health. I agree. Right? 
um, in a society where you know mental health concerns are at an all-time high, oftentimes seeing that people cope with those emotions by dissociating on those platforms is terrifying. So you know, through that lens, you know, I definitely don't identify with the extremes on either side. I have you know close friends and family who identify with both, um, and I I love chatting with with each of them. Um, I express my agreement and disagreement with both sides on various things. You know, I believe with a lot of, uh, in a lot of like conservative fiscal policy, I believe in a lot of, uh, you know, far left social issues, uh, things like that. And because of that, it's, it's kind of hard to not piss off one side or the other by expressing an authentic opinion that isn't just the same regurgitated cookie cutter mantra of one side or the other. Yeah, I agree with all that you've said, by the way. And I think probably the challenges we face these days is that there's no such thing, or it seems uh, that's not, that's a, a big statement. It is more difficult than ever to actually have a discussion without things going off the rails one way or the other. Where did we get to a point where we couldn't have a discussion, where we couldn't view or share a view of the world that doesn't align with somebody else's view? And what it seems to have done is actually shut people up. You know, there's a lot of uh, people operating on top of, you know, conversations that they wish they could have, statements that they wish they could make, discussions that they wish they could have, even not even to prove their point, but actually just to, talk it out and to hear somebody else's perspective. But, you know, for fear of uh, being trolled or being, you know, shut, shot down or shut up or whatever the term is, uh, those discussions aren't being had. You know, the polarization uh, right around the world globally. And, you know, I can speak to Canada to the degree I'm familiar with the U.S. because I've spent time there and I have friends there. You start to realize that the polarization and the divisiveness uh, of society is has really gotten extreme. Those That gap has gotten very, very wide. And when I even look at what's happening politically, I think that is the biggest, when I get charged about something, it's the politics. It is actually the leaders who are not leaders. Uh, you know, I don't know the top, the whole quote off the top of my head, but it, you know, one of the lines is that weak men create hard times and our leaders are right now uh, very weak, the majority of them by far. And we are facing hard times because of that inability to make decisions, to take a stand for what is the greater good. And it, is driven by politics over policy. Those are things that I'm observing and I can get really fired about, up about those particular conversations. You know, culturally, I just see that divide and it's, it's disheartening. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I love that quote, you know, the, the weak people create hard times, hard times, create strong people, strong people, create easy times, easy times, create weak people. Right cyclical it is and sometimes we are both of those right there are times where we are weak through the lens of that particular analogy and there's sometimes where we're strong um and you know i agree and um and you know at the end of the day i think it's also important like for me i'm aware of the advantages that i was that i was innately given you know i was born in america in modern times you know i was i was uh, born into a family that did not completely screw me up uh, we were able to eat all of our meals and I was encouraged to think, you know, I, I was, I was not heavily discriminated against in any way growing up. Like I'm aware of all those advantages and, you know, rather than, um, trying to hide from that reality, my, my intention instead is to just use that, 
in a way that I can make the largest impact on humanity, regardless of their starting point uh, across the board. And I think that, you know, if we if we try to vilify people because of what their starting point, their innate starting point that they have no control of are, regardless of what that was, it's a huge mistake. I think there are a lot of advantages from growing up in hardship. I think there are a lot of, you know, um, taxes that you pay from the same thing, right? Uh, and because of that, you know, there are a lot of circumstances. There's a lot of anger that takes place. Uh, and I think the the question always becomes like, based on what you've experienced, how are you going to act? How are you going to create change? Um, how are you going to make an impact? And how are you going to influence others? Uh, if you've got a good answer to all those questions, then you're, you're ahead of the curve in comparison to 99% of society. So Travis, uh, you've been generous with your time. I uh, appreciate it. As I wind down, I like to go through some, uh, what I refer to as rapid fire questions that are never quite so rapid fire, but they can be. Uh, so uh, let's kind of wind down and uh, play a little game called some rapid fire questions. Uh, first one, you mentioned uh, the book, you know, Extreme Ownership, but aside from that particular book, is there a book that was really impactful for you or a book that you really like to uh, gift out? Yeah, actually I do. There are two that I typically go to. One is uh, highly tactical. It's called Lean Customer Development by Cindy Alvarez. Uh, the reason for that is anytime someone is trying to get into entrepreneurship and they have an idea and they say, what's the first thing I should do? I always say, forget the idea, go find a customer subset with money to spend on an intense problem they're having and readily available contact information, interview at least 20 of them, and then go back and look for patterns. That book outlines a really clear framework on how to do just that. The other one is a fairly recent book that came out. It's called Greatness by Dr. David Cook. Uh, David Cook was one of the world's foremost sports psychologists. He's worked with champions from most sports and it's profoundly simple and profoundly impactful. It's a short read. It's, it's, um, it's just very good. And it's a, a really great reminder. It's also fantastically marketed. Beautiful. Do you have a favorite music genre or a favorite band that you go to that you kind of always put on your playlist? You know, I am honestly not a big music guy these days. I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, a lot of podcasts, a lot of sports talk radio. But when I do listen to music, I usually listen to it for a very specific reason as to transition from one emotion to another one. Whether that's in the evening, if I want to wind down, I'll listen to something really, really mellow. Um, sometimes I like kind of slow bluegrass. Sometimes I like a, a little bit of, of like peaceful classical kind of music if it's during the day and i'm working you know it's different types of like soundscapes that don't have words that are a little bit more upbeat and energetic and if i'm you know if i'm driving by myself and i just like i'll, I'll absolutely listen to to hip-hop and i'll listen to bluegrass and you know i'll listen to to you know whole range um yeah whole range i mean i grew up with the most obscure country in bluegrass and and blues that i could have ever been exposed to. So that's also a big piece of me. Fantastic. Do you have a favorite movie? Rounders. Oh, good movie. Favorite swear word? Fuck. Android or Apple? Apple. Yeah, there you go. Something I wanted to ask you, and this isn't normally my questions, but uh, I, on this part of my question uh, from a rapid fire, but you still working out? You still going to the gym? How important is your physical fitness these days? 
it's just a core part of my DNA. It's it's how I start almost every day. It's moving meditation for me. It doesn't feel like a um, you know painful or something that I that I have to do from you know a way that I wouldn't want to do it. I, I actually like who I am a lot more after that morning you know morning workout. Uh, so I usually leave the house at or a little over a little before seven, come home a little a little before nine, and I just go there being alongside people who are trying to get better. I get inspired. I listen to things. I think uh, that's where I get some of my best ideas. So, um, and I just sleep better every, every night. And I can also eat more of what I love. Beautiful. And final question for today is what are you grateful for Travis? You know, this is probably, this could be the longest answer on the podcast. I could take up hours of your time answering this question. Uh, every day that I drive home from the gym, you know, I'll turn on a song and um, and I'll just you know blurt out and yell out gratitudes for so many different things in my life. I mean, I'm I am so fortunate in so many ways, and you know I know that it is a muscle that it has to be worked. You know, it is easy as a founder to go into kind of like the dark night of the soul way more often than you should. Uh, I think gratitude is oftentimes the preventative medicine for that. So. That's honestly like everything, you know, honestly, like the, the time that I have in this world to see evolve the fact that we're all effectively sentient organized collections of atoms derived from dead stars. And, you know, we're, we're able to actually have like some sort of unique set of memories, but we're also all derived from the same initial form of life that just has split and evolved in different ways. It's fascinating. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's just being able to witness everything with the cognition that I have and make cool memories along the way and collect those, you know, be with people who are just really, really wonderful and inspire me and to just be, you know, healthy for as long as I can. And, uh, even when death comes someday, being grateful for that as well, you know, hearing from a lot of folks that have had NDEs and the most profound form of peace they've ever experienced um, is definitely not something that I'm afraid of. So, you know, when that time comes, that'll be something that I'm grateful for too. But in the, in, in the meantime, you know, every moment of every single day and the ability to do things that are scary and big and confusing and, you know, painful and exhausting, like, and the challenges and what they craft me into are, are all things that I'm grateful for. Fantastic. Well, my friend, I am grateful for the opportunity to have had this conversation with you and for you sharing a lot of wisdom in this conversation. Really great. So I'm always, always grateful for my guests. And uh, I'm also always grateful for my home, my family, my wife, my grandkids and my dogs. And uh, once again, I want to say thanks for joining me on the Everyday Millionaire podcast and sharing your insights, your wisdom. It is appreciated. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.